Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Thomas. Now, Michael is an extraordinary man, and if there's someone that has a big heart, it's him. You know, we were talking just before the show got started, and he's talking about even how he's learning how to work with his own big heart and what that means. And that's why I'm so excited about this episode is he's just launched this incredible book called The Black Financial Culture building wealth from the inside out. And so we're going to talk a lot about that story, what that means. And uh, I just want to plug, he has modem solutions. He'll talk a little bit more about that. But if you don't fall in love with Michael by the end of this, we missed something, but this is, buckle up. (laughs) This is going to be a great conversation. Michael, welcome to the show. It'll be fun. No, thank you. Thank you, Ed. And uh, I want to take this opportunity again to give you your roses. Uh, We've navigated very similar circles for a very long time. And uh, you've been one of those people on the forefront of um, anything that is relates to emotions and and money and and regulation and understanding uh, money scripts and genograms and all these other different (laughs) things. I've been in on those sessions. And uh, so I just, because I don't, when people see this now and where we are now as a profession, we don't always recognize all of the amazing people who've been here for, for like years doing this stuff day in and day out. And so I want to give you your roses too. I appreciate you, brother. And uh, I want you to know that your work has influenced my work dearly. So I appreciate Amen. the space to be here, uh, but it is definitely an honor. Thank you. And, and I appreciate that. And I think we were talking about before the show got started, right? It's it's one thing to be the man at the top of the mountain screaming from the top, but it's another to be in the church and the choir singing together. Absolutely. And I think that, that that's, you know, and you, you're like, yeah, we're a choir. And I think hopefully listeners, we want you to join our choir and learn how to sing, sing and bring your own voice and your own character, but also join in the course of like exploring your own relationship with money, which is kind of the topic of your book. And I was yeah, just so excited about the way that you framed your book. And so can you lead people into like just the, the high level intro to your book and then we'll, we'll peel into more of the layers? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there, there are a lot of conversations that circle around uh, black culture and then black financial culture in general. Yeah. And one of the things that I've realized, having navigated a lot of different spaces, my own personal journey with money actually taking the time to unpack my mother's journey with money and things that she taught me along the way where I didn't learn until I got older. Like, oh, this is where this comes from. Uh, This is why she said this. This is why she maybe spent more uh, as a coping mechanism to address some trauma uh, and things that she was dealing with growing up that I, I never had the capacity to see those things. But I was able to see her as being human and in this journey and basically doing the very best that she can do with what she had 
at that time. And it took her a long time to express her own economic agency because she was bounded to her past experiences uh, culturally in terms of information that was passed down to her, to her grandmother, as it relates to race and identity and all these other different things that ultimately then kind of impacts the way that she engages with me and my sister and we go through this process. So, but the beautiful thing about my mom is that she's had to actually engage in this process of unpacking her own stuff, seeing her authentic self as in who she is today and not who she was. And I'm so proud to say that because she's engaged in that work, she's in a position where she's established wealth and she's owned her own journey and she's no longer bounded by the past. And I just thought that there's this beautiful symmetry in my mom's experience, my experience, these notions of identity within black financial culture, some that we adopt, right? Some that we gloss over and don't think that this is black financial culture or this is white culture or this is other culture where none of this stuff is anybody's culture, quite honestly, (laughs) Um, right? It's, It's almost like, so for instance, I remember I had a friend of mine who had told me at one point in time that, oh, like, you know, he would say something along the lines of, oh, they don't teach us this. And that like, but all white people know this information, right? And I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, dude, I work in this space. <laughs> I know some white people and I know they don't know this stuff. Right? Like, yeah. This is not the case. I work with all different people from all different backgrounds. What we are talking about is not unique to our experience. However, when we adopt that mentality, we create the perception as if it is. And so what I'm doing in this book is that I'm using my experience I'm not calling out any individual or any larger group of people. I'm just showing you how I'm walking through my uniquely black experience with black themes, black cultural references, music, and all these other different things where it would be palatable for the audience that I'm speaking to. But then also creating a space where I help individuals see themselves outside of the boundedness that sometimes we, we rest in and we accept as normal to kind of get people to consider, well, is this really normal? And do I want this to be my normal, right? And to empower people along their journey, to just take one step at a time to create a new normal and understand that they have the freedom to do that, right? So that's the beauty of the book that's rooted in my mom's story, my personal story of overcoming a lot of different things Uh, both in terms of life experiences, lived experiences, trauma, how I navigated that through therapy, losing my sister, right? Um, And just all these different things that impacted my financial journey every step of the way and still kind of coming out on the back end, not unscathed, but growing in a way Mm -hmm. to where I have greater capacity to absorb these things and still be healthy and move on. So it's not this perfect journey, right? There's there's nothing typical <laughs> about this book, Ed. This is not your typical personal finance book. This is not all. the happily ever after book. No. You mean I'm not going to get some advice on crypto or an index fund or the latest? Well, I, I touch on it. I, ah. I do touch on blockchain technology. I call it buying a block. But the, the idea of it is stretching the idea of technology 
right? And okay. actually challenging black culture in general, not just to consider, you know, some uh, new emergent thing that can potentially yeah. make you rich, but then how are we even culturally considering, well, how do we get in a space to build in this space or to consider technology in a space and having more of a presence here and actually creating the very things that we're investing in or considering to invest in. So I use that narrative as a bigger narrative, which is challenging the culture a little bit to consider our role in technology, right? So that's kind of like the, the, the play there as it relates to it. Michael, you are always thinking on multiple layers at the same time. Yes, I can't. That's just how I'm designed. <laughs> I, 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 I love it. And I'm like, sometimes like, whoa, hold on. I got to listen to that three times <laughs> to get layer one and then get layer two and then layer three. And then maybe a fourth time. To well, get we read the book. Yeah, but we'll go back and get that. But You're going to see how layered it is because there, I've literally taken, you're going to see elements of person-centered therapy, cognitive yeah. behavior therapy, yeah. solution focused therapy. You're going to see like elements of market portfolio theory, right? <laughs> like all these, just like these higher level concepts that I distill down in such a way where you wouldn't even know that everything that I'm talking about is backed by some level of research, but you're not bogged down in that. And it's really right. palatable for someone who has, who's never engaged in research at all to right. be able to receive these messages and it actually be backed by something fairly substantive. Uh, you know, I really appreciate you, you saying that. And I think that this is something that I'm, so talking about the money journey, right? Like your money journey is not done and mine's not done either, right? There's, so much more that we're going to discover and we'll look back at this point and we'll be like, man, we're still so naive as wise as I, as wise as I feel like I've become 10 years from now, I'll look back and be like, <laughs> man, you are still pretty naive, but it's, uh, it's not hard for me to remember how much I understood the world as a firefighter with junior college level of education. And even yes. with completed undergrad and, you and I have both had the privilege to spend many years in higher education and graduate education. And that does something profound to a person's brain and level of thinking. Now, you were already yes. a very smart person before you ever got into graduate school, no doubt. And apparently I was too. But yes, that message was lost on me for a long time. Um, I, I'm, I'm owning it. I'm working on owning my own intelligence. But there's a difference between kind of innate intelligence and developed ability to think critically that happens in the journey of graduate school and these high-minded you get accused of being kind of an egghead and, and as you can see my head is kind of shaped it's, uh, yes it's a beautiful brown egg if i shaved my head it would be a, a lumpy white one so <laughs> uh, but right that's it's for listeners you know no matter where you're at on your educational journey our intention is to help walk people through like how do we come by these ideas to know that they're substantiated in something more than just michael's good ideas or ed's good ideas these are ideas developed through a community of people researching and so that community of research helps balance out sometimes some of the distortions that can happen in our own individual thinking at least that's how i can think about it no absolutely it's, it's spot on so michael i'm curious 
as you went through writing your book and documenting this, how did you even grow through that experience? What did you see about yourself newly and differently or, or more profoundly or, and deeply? Yeah, I think, honestly, the, the most profound thing that I got out of this book um, was one, battling my internal self-talk about speaking my authentic voice in mm. the way that I felt as if my authentic voice needed to resonate without considering the way that my authentic voice would be received. If that makes sense, because every step of the way as I'm writing, I'm thinking, well, if I say this, how could this be like, this could be misconstrued or right. Yeah. But at yeah, the yeah, end yeah. of the day, I have, I have no control over someone else's lens or the prism in which they receive. I could, I could word something beautifully, <laughs> right? right? Yes. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Absolutely. People are going to take something the way that they want to take it. What I had to realize is that I have to be perfectly okay with that. Right. And because there's a lot of vulnerability within mm -hmm. this book sure. and I'm, I'm, you know, exposing things about myself and my hurt and my pain and yeah. my experience with my community and the people around me and my perceptions on this, yeah. where if you're a person who's from, who's African-American and you don't agree with a particular angle that I take, well, guess what? I'm susceptible to ridicule on that end. Yeah. Right. right. And if you're someone who is not African-American and you don't like the way that I portray maybe some historical fact, mm -hmm. right? Right. However it works, it's on that end. And I just said at the end of the day, you know what? I know that everything that I've written is forthright, is honest, is backed by by data and whether or not <laughs> that means anything to anybody. Right. I can't control that. But what I can do is lend my voice to the conversation. And as you mentioned in the first my voice isn't the only voice. I don't. I didn't write this book thinking that it was going to be the gospel of the way that people have to do something or live some type of way. I just wanted to say, hey, this is my lens. Right. This is my perspective. And I would like to offer this in book form in a way where hopefully people can see themselves authentically as well because of me being authentic and vulnerable where people can embrace their own vulnerabilities because I've embraced my vulnerabilities. So I'm trying to model something throughout this book where people yeah. can, you know, take whatever they want to take, discard what they want to, what they want to discard. And that's perfectly okay. That's what I had to get okay with. Right. Because, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Like the rejection, like that's really what it is. And it's the rejection, right? That's what it was. Uh huh. One hundred percent. With your book, right? Same. I have your book, and I've read your book, so I get it. So that was the piece: is me dealing with what rejection looks like when people don't receive it, uh, or if people don't receive it. But the beauty, though, in doing this, is that I can honestly look at the work that I've done, and I can say that I gave the very best of me in this project for, at this time. Yeah. Right. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I can't say that I've necessarily been in a space where I've allowed myself to be vulnerable in this way that potentially can live on forever, quite honestly. And that's that's yeah. huge. Yeah. And uh, so that was for me 
probably the biggest piece of this process was embracing my vulnerability, uh, not being judgmental of myself as I'm navigating and using my own compass to navigate this process. Uh, and where it lands, it lands. And I just honored the vision. And that's what I'm most content about. There's so much richness in there. And, and one of the through lines that I think is, is so powerful is getting right with money, from my perspective, has so much to do with getting right with yourself. Yes. Right. And like, you can't fully get right with money until you get right with yourself. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's going to be yeah. a willpower thing to get right with money. If you're trying to please your mom, please your culture, please your religion, please your, your wife, please your kids, please whoever it is you got to please. Right. For, for each of us, that can be a slightly different combination. Yeah. If you're, if you're stuck in trying to please the other and you can't be comfortable with like, this is who I am authentically. This is how I see yeah. myself. It's going to be treacherous. Yeah. So again, I was talking about all these elements that are in the book. Yeah. And, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So this kind of brings us to this space of social capital theory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Coleman, I want to say 1989, uh, wrote a paper on social capital and he talks about these three elements of it. Um, and one of those is trust and reciprocity. Mm -hmm. that you have within a social system and dynamic of the people that you're engaged with that are part of your system. You also have dissemination of information in terms of what information within a system, right? <laughs> is accepted information within the system. Oh God. Oh, there's a lot there. Yeah. And if you're, if you're, if you're bringing in information into the system that the system is not willing to receive, then guess what? There are social <laughs> sanctions. Oh, right? yeah. hell yeah, right? there is. Yeah. So, so to your point, the, the interesting thing is that we're not just not to your point that you made earlier. We're just not navigating one system. So mm -hmm. think about not being able to be your authentic self in any system that you are navigating. Right. Because you're always trying to appease and fall within a construct of one system as another. Right. We become voiceless. And we become limited to the whims or bounded to the capacity of our system. So that whole notion of black financial culture, my hope is that it gives it gives individuals to understand maybe current family systems. Yeah. Extend some grace to why current family systems are the way that they are, because they didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a reason why you've been taught something. Yes. And we don't have to throw it away. Right. But now we're in a position in a space where we have to ask ourselves is, does what I know currently align with where I'm trying to go? And at some point, we all have to step back and ask ourselves, because if not, if we fall in line with our systems as is, yeah. we're limited in cap in terms of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And so... To achieve more means we need more information. And yeah. oftentimes when we get more information, it causes dissonance within the system. Yeah. So when navigating your financial journey, oftentimes within the context of black financial culture and even other cultures, you could actually be ostracized for trying to do something better or more because now you're different, right? And so oh what yes. I'm trying to get people to see is that it's through that process of being different in growth that we then carve a new pathway 
yeah. for people to comfortably and safely navigate from system to system uh-huh. in a way that now we can see sustained growth and become more accepting and evolve our systems and the lens and dynamic and information and so on and so forth. So unpacking that from a systems theory perspective um, is a lot of what I'm doing in the book to kind of nudge people yeah. to stretch the bounds that they may currently yeah. be bounded by that they're not aware of in a safe way that's using my story to do it. All right, so I, I'm just gonna ask this question. This is a little, like, comes up uh, from Shift. So for listeners, I was just at a financial planning conference on client psychology, and Michael was nice enough to say, hey, I saw you were at Shift. You know, how was it? I said it was great. But I got this one conversation that I've been noodling on, and this is, you know, I'm a white male, you're a black male, and that has lots of meaning, right? And and as I'm on my own journey of understanding where I'm at and understanding race and navigating race and what that means to me, and it is a little bit of trying to understand what does it mean to the other person, never knowing, yes. because what it means to you to be a black male and what it means yep. to the next black male that I talk to does not necessarily could be could mean a lot of different things right and so yes i'm talking even do you use black do you use african-american do you use like what how do you define like it's, i, it's I feel like i'm and honestly over. michael i'm just gonna sometimes i feel like i'm screwed either way like i'm not yeah, gonna, and i'll be honest with you Ed, me too <laughs> well i'm glad to i'm appreciative of hearing that right is yeah depending okay on the circles that you're navigating even within the black experience there's people are going to parse words and then use the way that we use language and words through their filter and lens, right? So there's there's actually a part in the book where I actually explore that dynamic so that you yeah. can actually see it from my lens of yeah. walking into a black space and me being questioned as a black male within a black space yeah. on the eve of President Barack Obama's first presidential victory. So I actually unpack that narrative in a way to where you could actually, if you're a white person and you're reading a book, you can say, oh, I could actually see myself in this. And that's the beauty of how I try to bring things together because it should draw connections. Even though it's called black financial culture, it's intriguing, right? It's like, oh, let me check this out. Let me see what's going on here. But my, my hope is to actually unify people and to help them understand that at the end of the day, regardless of who's reading it, we actually have a lot more in common than we have differences. And then also there are historical contexts and things that we need to take in consideration right. and understand that there's a compound effect of these things that can have drastic implications. We can't undermine that, but that doesn't mean that, again, we have to be bounded by it either. Right. right. So how do we move forward together in healthy ways? So. The the long and the short is I was being asked about, um, and I want to be I'm always trying to be thoughtful of confidentiality and what gets told to me in a private conversation. But yeah. I was effectively being asked about counseling a black couple on their finances. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is that there are universal themes that are independent of racial identity. Yes, that are relevant, and and in that way, I feel like I'm I am competent to look at. So my lens, right, is attachment theory. So human yes. related bondedness is independent of racial identity. 
the need to be bonded, cared for, and loved is independent of racial identity. Yes. That's a human fundamental need. It's a mammalian fundamental need. So yes. that that part I'm good on, right? But it's no, I agree. But if you if you if you trust if you if you bring somebody else, right, yeah. they may not. And they may not. That's okay. <laughs> Look, like I rejected the whole idea of attachment theory when I first learned about it. So I get it, right? Like <laughs> that's that's the joy and challenge of all of this work. But you know, as I'm talking and being asked and kind of consulted informally about what to do, I'm just noticing my own. So talking about a system, my own physiological arousal is rising higher and higher because I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can sense that this person is in distress and wanting to help their client with this and the dynamics of it. And they're, they're strong in the identification of what's part of the black culture, that this is the way things are. And I, I think what I'm hearing you say is like, and yet for all of us, we're bounded by our racial identity to some degree. And and attribute rightly and wrongly to some degree that this is a white issue. This is a black issue. This is a, you know, brown, like light skin, brown, you know, agent. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, I think, you know, just trying to, I always want to have good intention and be supportive and yet getting lost in like, what do I do here? How do I, how do we helpful? Right. Yeah. I, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I think for, and I can't speak for the entire diaspora of the black experience. Of course not. Right. right. Uh, but I would say for, for anyone, like in those moments, like when you find yourself in that space, really what people want is just to be heard. Yeah. And to create the space to be heard. Right. And to be validated and not to be dismissed for their experiences. Or to, to be told and that however they're, they're describing it. How they're describing it, right? Like Yeah, I was just just thinking about that, right? Like I I found myself wanting to go to that kind of more intellectualized, well, it could be this, could be that, could be and it's you know, as we're talking, of course it's drawing back to I mean, you have a TED talk on empathy and financial empathy yes. specifically, right? Yep. It is coming back to the empathy of let me just meet you wherever you're at in your understanding you and can convey that I'm doing the best I can to try to understand your understanding of your experience. So there's a there's a paper uh, that came out several years ago because like this is the thing around empathy in general is that empathy in the social sciences and medicine has been explored thoroughly. Right. There's yeah. a lot of information out there on it. The reason why I explicitly said financial empathy, because I also understand that mm -hmm. people empathize based on sometimes what they feel is necessary to empathize. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Uh -huh. It's not like I'm just an empathetic person and I'm empathetic for every situation and circumstance. No, right. That's not how it works. So yeah. You know exactly, you know exactly where I'm going here. Oh so, yeah. So the reason why I said financial empathy was because I needed for us at that point in time, because you, you and I both know 2010 and on, that was probably the era of financial shaming, the yeah. era of financial guilting, the era of, right, like there's just so much of that was happening. So there wasn't very little empathy for the context behind people's financial narratives. Right. which is where I wanted to drive that conversation. Yeah. So within that paper, there's this acronym. It's called NURSE, 
So okay. it comes from the medical field. And it's something that I use in presentations all the time. But how you navigate that process when you feel it is that we want to name the thing from okay. the client's lens, right? Right. We then want to try to understand from the client's perspective and lens, right? So we're naming. So tell me more about that. Help me understand that, right? And how it makes you feel and how you experience it. Then we want to actually engage in a process of using language that shows that we respect their position. We respect their story. We offer our support of the individual, right? As they're mm -hmm. engaging in this process, like, thank you for sharing, right? I'm here to continue to hear you. And then we use that as the backdrop to kind of explore how we move forward together, right? So I may not understand your experience yeah. per se, but yeah. I may have the social cachet I may have the relationships. I may have like, you get yeah, where I'm going yeah, here. Yeah. In terms of me fully understanding, I can see where I can respond compassionately to your needs, where I can do so. That's That actually feels authentic for me by not yeah. having to completely adopt the black experience or to speak a certain way or to act like I know when I don't know because empathy is both uh, cognitive empathy is what yeah. we understand. And right. it's also emotional in terms of really what's the universal theme and emotion here? Because I may not right. connect to the direct experience, but I know what fear feels like. I know what anxiety feels like. I know what walking into a room and feeling like I don't belong feels like. Yeah. I may not understand, but I know what that feels like. So I can, right. we can tap into that if we want to. So right. the healthy balance of empathy is both understanding Right. Yeah. And being able to understand the emotion and kind of tap into that so that we can respond compassionately to yeah. the needs of the person. And we can assess whether or not we have the capacity to do that. And if right. we don't, that's empathy because we can say, hey, I would love to serve you, but I'm limited in my capacity to do this. Yeah. Let me refer you to someone I know who would be excellent. Yeah. That's compassion. That's empathy. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of people get stuck because they feel as if I have to be this expert and I have to make this experience just right because I want to do well. Right. right. Yes. I've been waiting oh. for this moment. <laughs> yeah. You got me nailed on that one. Right. Like, But sometimes we may, we may be limited in our capacity to serve. So being able to recognize our limitations yeah. and what we can serve is how we respond compassionately. And the way we do that is by nursing the relationship because it allows for us to slow down. Right. Not overthink and really to be in the moment and allow for the client to guide the conversation so that we can find because we're going to struggle with dissonance as well oh, as yeah. they're speaking. Right. <laughs> uh -oh, so then yeah. we have to engage in self-regulation yeah. on our side. So after the session, I need to nurse myself. I need right. to name where I had dissonance. I need yeah. to understand my dissonance. I need to respect that my life experiences are true too. Right. right. I need mm -hmm. to extend grace and support to myself, but I also need to explore where I may have blind spots yeah. and where I may have opportunities for growth. So this nurse, when we see it in the literature, it's uniquely spoken to on the side of the client that we're working with. Yeah. I flip it both ways because we're both yeah. interacting in this right, right. engagement where yes. we're both feeling, sensing, perceiving. And we have to not just create space for the client, but create space for ourselves. So to like tying this back to the book, that's exactly what I was doing. I'm yeah. thinking about the, the person who's reading 
and trying to nurse them by adding anecdotes and showing how I I do understand, but then also nursing myself in this process as well. So the hope is that I'm experiencing healing through this process. And as people who are reading this book, I hope that they'll experience some healing and self-compassion and grace so that we can all continue to be a part of that choir that you were talking about to proliferate financial wholeness and wellness and well-being so people can live live their authentic lives and own their journey. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. So I'm going to throw something out there that's really big and radical, but it's just been chewing on my, on my mind. And I know you'll you'll navigate it with Michael's style. <laughs> you know, we live in a capitalist society. We live in a capitalist economic yes. system. What if we lived in a financial well-being based system? How would the world change? Yeah. You know what? If I, I feel as if we if we lived in a well-being system, and I love that you bring up systems, um, because I'm, con- I'm I'm sorry, y'all. If, if for those of you listening, I'm bringing up all these theories. So now I'm triggering systems theory here. Yeah, right. right? Of it's course. Terms. I mean, I got an academic I'm, on the I'm show. Sure. I'm gonna bring out all the like, no, right? you know. I'm, teaching, I'm going like y'all. Yeah. This is how my brain works. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so with with that, I feel as if oftentimes. So if we take systems theory and game theory. And so people oftentimes do what they're incentivized to do. Right, right. Right. Oh, yeah. So if we're, if we're kind of using game theory, if we have a system where we're incentivizing financial well-being and things of that nature, I think what happens is that it takes the pressure off of people, the stress yeah. off of people to be performative, right. to be seen. Yeah. And if you think about the space that we're currently navigating, it seems as if Everything is so performative in such a way to be seen, to be visible in a way to where potentially we can monetize X, Y, and Z so that once we've gotten a monetization that we feel, right, that Uh now we can live our best selves. But if that was always (laughs) rooted in external factors, no amount of money will ever help any of us address that need to be seen because once we navigate to different levels... And now within this level, somebody has more, better, greater, or whatever it may be. And I'm not seen here. I need to aspire for more to be seen at this level. Right. And once I navigate that level, right? If there's no, there's no end to this journey. Yeah. So I personally think if we, if we were, if we were prioritizing financial wellness and well-being of individuals, as we were talking about uh, before the show, and actually in moments during, is that I think that people would be would be more content would be able to be their authentic selves and actually be able to find more joy in just being present and in a moment, Yeah. right? At the time that we're recording this, it's spring. Yeah. How many people have literally just taken the time out of the hustle and bustle of their lives 
to just actually experiencing spring in bloom. Right. What happens is, is that when spring hits, we say, oh, look at all the flowers and all the greenery. Right. But we completely yeah. miss the season yeah. right? because we're so focused on the, this destination that we can't be present enough to enjoy things that are happening in bloom. Uh, so I, I like to kind of think about it from that lens is that I think that yeah. we'd be more present. We'd be more centered. There'd be less peer pressure and social pressure on right. what success looks like. And then success can actually really be you actually being able to experience the highest form of your being, whatever that is. Right. right. I think that's a beautiful I think that's a beautiful way of, of thinking about life in general. Well, I think, you know, the, the market mindset seeps so deep into the intimate relationships, right? And people feel like they have to perf yeah. be performative to be seen in their intimate relationships. And it's yep. like in intimate relationships, there's reciprocity and empathy and there's mutuality and being seen. That's, that's, that's kind of the, from an attachment theory, that's what I've loved about it so much is it's, it's not just about me and it's not just about the other person. It's about, it's about me. It's about the other person and yes. it's about us together. Yes. There's space for all of it. <laughs> for, for each of them, right? There's a place for me to be fully my authentic self, for them to be fully themselves, for us to both yes. see that, mirror that, acknowledge it, and then to recognize we form almost this third self between the two of us in the intimate relationship. Yes. And it doesn't have to diminish, like your being your fullest self doesn't diminish me. That's Nor right. does me being my fullest self diminish you. So what we're saying is that there's no cap on realization of self. Right. However, in a monetary system, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. how supply and demand yeah. works, right? right? Yeah. yeah. We're always thinking about supply relative to demand, to demand and value to be able to monetize and optimize self, yeah. right? Because yeah. it, it really is a situation where sometimes... I have to win. Somebody has to lose for me to win, right? And and that yeah. creates a dynamic to your point, especially from relationships, yeah. right? Intimate partner yeah. relationships, where it creates adversarial relationships because the relationship revolves around resource management, right? Yeah. Meaning that if you spend more, I don't get. If I spend more, you don't get. And it's not right. even about how we create the space for us and each other independently. I like the way that you frame that because that's what it becomes. Well, right. Because there is, uh, you know, I'm hearing the entrepreneurs in my head, like there's endless opportunity to make more money, right? Like that's kind of the entrepreneur, just sell more, grow more, yeah. make more money, right? Like that mantra. Yeah. And that, and to some degree, okay, maybe that's true. But for most of society, we live in bounded reality around yes. resource availability, right? Like yes. my salary is $60,000 a year. My salary is 120. My salary is $20,000 a year. Whatever the number is doesn't matter. There is a kind of a cap to how much resource will financial resource will flow in this year. Yes. And then you have an allocation decision. But if I allocate money for my golf game, that means there's less money for the kids sports or for fancier dinners out with my wife or whatever the trade-off. There's some trade-off if I'm pursuing golf. There always is. Unfortunately. There I mean, always would, is. Otherwise, I'd be golfing all the time. But anyway, I'm not, <laughs> I've digressed. So I want to come back, though, because something that came up also at Shift, and I thought it was very profound, is one of the speakers talked about 
their own journey in personal finance and reflecting on how their parents are still struggling financially, right? So they've become yeah. financially successful, stable. Their parents have stayed behind. And I think there's so many people in the financial planning space that are in the financial planning space because of the pain of money or the absence of yes. money in their life. And they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to do better, yes. whatever that do better yes. is. And you, you kind of alluded to that your mom has taken her own money journey and it yeah. sounds like it wasn't the best starting place. And so I'm no. curious about what that dynamic has been like for her. What, what, how have the two of you played off of each other in that journey? Because I think there's yeah. a lot of us that say, I, man, I'd love for my parents to get a little bit more on their own journey. How do I, how do I help facilitate that? And yeah. knowing, talk about, man, talk about constraints and systems. There's a lot there. There is, there is a lot there actually. So in the book, in the, the last chapter of the book, I talk about uh, navigating systems where as a, as a young child and into my middle uh, school years and high school years, I was receiving various messages about what black people can't do okay, or what black people don't do. Right. So this is directly tying race to money. The messages, right? Like yeah, this is, this is directly, this is directly tied. So like within this notion or this veil of black financial culture or black yeah. culture in general, right. we were actually, I was constantly being bounded in terms of don't even try to, because this isn't the way reality is for us. So here's a, right. so this is an anecdote that I include in the book. And I think that this really gets to the heart of what you're saying about families and what I had to learn over time was that. So growing up, and I know this might be a taboo thing, but the Cosby show was my favorite show, right? Sure. I'm just going to yeah. be honest with you. At that time and period, it was virtuous and good. At that time and period, yeah. yes. So navigating that. So I would literally schedule my weeks to where I could watch the Cosby show every week, right? Uh -huh. So my there was one week, though, where there was like some like My Little Pony special show coming on. <laughs> During the same time that I would watch the Cosby show, right? Yo, no. okay. So my yeah. sister, who's younger yeah. than me, she's the baby, obviously. She goes to my mom and says, can I watch the My Little Pony thing? And I get it. It's a one-time special, but like this is my time to engage with the Cosby show. Now, right. mind you, the reason why I like the Cosby show, because I was madly in love with Felicia Rashad, who is Claire Huxtable. Like, so that for me, yeah, was why like, not? Yeah, that was Dana. <laughs> So, uh, uh. so we're engaged. So my mom ultimately decides that Tierra, my sister, yeah. gets to watch her her show, whatever. And yeah. usually I didn't push back on stuff like that, but I was mad, Ed. Yeah. I was mad. So I, I went to my mom. I kept pushing her and pushing her and pushing her. I was like, you know, I watched the Cosby show. And, you know, during during yeah, that time, there was only oh. one television in the house. Like, there were right. multiple TVs everywhere. Right. So, right. And so she's like, well... She was like, your sister's going to watch the show. Plus, that's not how black people live anyway. Because your context growing up is what? Where are you yeah, growing so, up? Yeah, our, my context, Gary, Indiana, right? Yeah. Still Milltown, yeah. uh, very blue collar in nature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the struggle was the journey, right? You didn't yeah. have two individuals. and You didn't, oftentimes you didn't have... Even no, we, we had balance in our community because you had families who came from two parent households, whatever it may be, in single households. Sure. However, though, the, the general consensus though was that the struggle was what defined the black uh, experience. 
When yeah. you watch the Cosby show, you're looking at the dual income earning household. Everybody has degrees, right? right. You have a doctor and you have a lawyer and you have this beautiful family dynamic and they're engaging in real relationship and communication. Yeah. And for my mom at that time, I didn't, I didn't really fully understand it. So I got older. She struggled with me watching the Cosby show because it was her fear that that wasn't reality for us. Uh, that she wasn't measuring up to the Cosby family. Absolutely. And not just her not measuring up to the Cosby show, but the whole notion of if you try to do better, right? If you yeah. tried to kind of, there's this glass yeah. ceiling and it's going to bump you down. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, right. right? But don't, but don't even try because right. I don't want you to allow this world to break you. Stay safe. Yeah. Stay within the system. Yeah. Stay within the bubble. Right? right. So let me fast forward this. Um, it was maybe 2019. I was working with my mom on some financial things and she hadn't done it yet. So I'm in Georgia now and I had gone up to Indiana and I was like, so I was like, Hey Ma, have you done that thing that we talked about that you wanted? She was like, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it. And I was like, well, we have some time. Let's go ahead and do it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so we went to the bank and she did all the things that she needed to do. And I just sat in the car, like she handled it. I wasn't yeah. in there with her. She did it. She came into the car. She sat down and she took a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And she said, I did it. I'm so proud of myself. I never thought I would be able to do this. Right. And what was interesting was that in our unique situation and dynamic, my mom has seen me over the years consistently and gradually progress without hitting that wall that yeah. she thought was there and was going to bat me back down. Okay. Because that's what she grew up in. Like my mom was born in the, the late 1950s. Uh -huh. This is pre-Civil Rights Act. Yeah. So we have to think about what the narrative is around that time. And then of we have course. Martin Luther King get assassinated and we have yeah. Malcolm X get assassinated and all these. So it was this whole right. notion. So she was bounded by the reality of yeah. the time period to say that if you're black and you're aspiring for more, something bad's going to happen to like, you. Like you might just right? get killed. So for her, yes. Like so she literally. Was carrying that. Yeah. Yes, literally. She's carrying that. She's trying to protect me. I didn't see that that way at that time. No, I right. understand it now. That was a way to protect me. Mm -hmm. And then as she saw me continue to just gradually progress, and mind you, I still have my 2005 Toyota Camry. She still right. see me drive that same car, not yeah. get another car, right? Because right. my family was so accustomed to every two or three years, you get a brand new vehicle. Mm. I get 100,000 miles on a car. Guess what? The car didn't break down. I get to 150,000 miles on a car. Guess what? The car doesn't break down. Oh, look at you. I get yeah. to 200,000. Oh, the car doesn't break down. So my perception of being bounded in terms of why I'm getting a new car was because it becomes less dependable. Yes, there's a piece to that. Sure. So I'm up to 315,000 miles on my vehicle, right? Over this time frame, And every time I'm breaking a mental barrier in my mom's brain. Yeah, I'm not yeah. bounded by what we've known because what we know is that cars back in her day weren't dependable past 100,000 miles. 
Right. Right. But now with Toyota and when they came into the U.S. market, they primarily focused on creating dependable, valuable cars to compete against GM and Ford, which Ford for the longest time was back when it was found off-road dead. Right. Right. right, right. What I'm saying is that my mom, she needed to see that in me, even though she wanted that for me and she hoped that for me. She still needed to see that it was possible. And so for me navigating that space and then also in navigating that space, when she would make financial mistakes and do different things, I would never judge her. Mm. I would never, I would always lean into compassion and grace every step of the way and say, hey, mom, well, if you ever want to make a different decision, if you ever want to think through something differently, just let me know. And I've always kept it open. Right. So what started to happen was that as my mom started to engage in her own financial self-efficacy, because she was able to see me engage in mine, it started to empower her more and more and more and more. Because I created the grace, there was never judgment. I never said, hey mom, why are you here? Like, I do this and why don't you come to me? I I took away the judgment element to allow for her to move at her own pace and on time because I realized that the reasons why she was bounded were rooted in a time period and era that I can't even fully understand. And I have to give her space to navigate that. And then also to be this perception of maybe future self that if she decides to do it, right, it's her choice that I'm always going to be there to help be a guide if need be. So my mom right now is in a position where she finally is in a wealth position. She has positive net worth. She's never had that the entirety of her life, quite honestly. And if you hear her talk about her credit score and all these different things that she's done, she's excited about that. But even more importantly, she's become a version of herself that that language that she uses, she used to try to not try to bound me, but try to protect me. She used to try to protect herself, but she's now realized that, you know what? There was always more that I could have done. And she's leaned into that and she's done it. And I'm so incredibly proud of her uh, for doing that and to taking the journey up for herself and choosing it for herself. But I think that the big the yeah. big thing, though, was that I never guilted her or shamed her for her decisions and choices. I always kept an open door to say that I'm here to assist where you need me to. And I always focused on relationship over money. So, yeah, that's so powerful. And I think, you know, there's so much that I'm taking out of this last piece in my own relationship with my mom and and less about money, but other about that. You said, I can't even understand the full context of what she grew up in and what that meant for her. And that's not my and it's and I kind of heard you indirectly say and it's not mine, too. Right. But you yep. talk, you use two words, her own self-agency and her own financial self-efficacy. Those are huge words. Yeah. And I think that that's where many adult children, especially get sideways with their adult parents, is that they take on too much responsibility for mom or dad and they rob their parents yeah. of their own agency, their own self-dignity. And so that, that yeah. self-awareness to say, man, I love my mom. I'm equipped to help her. I've grown up. I've learned all these things. But at the end of the day, it's still her journey, not mine. It's her choice. And I respect yeah. who she is and her journey and her timing. 
And I'll just keep the door open. And if she wants it, great. And if she doesn't, that's her too. Yeah. Uh, and and also, Ed, she, my mom also knows I'm quick to say no. <laughs> right? I'm just being honest. Yeah, like, so I love it. Like, I'm quick to say no. I'm like, hey, yeah. I'm sorry. I can't help you. Because we have, I have this stuff for the boys. I have these other different things or whatever it may be. And I'm not going to compromise the things right. that I've done to ensure that I'm able to keep my promises for my boys and things of that nature. And then over time, she, I think that she began to really respect that because there are a lot of things that she did in our childhood to accommodate the needs of other family members who were leaning yeah. on her which meant that we didn't go, we didn't get to go to Six Flags or Great America in Chicago right. uh, during, the, during the summer break. We didn't get to go to Disney World. We didn't get to do a lot of different things because my mom was constantly always trying to be there for everyone else. So we got the short end of the stick oftentimes. Um, so now I've kind of flipped that a little bit. I, of course, I help where I can. Sure. Um, and she's in a space where she doesn't need my help. But I, I created a healthy boundary so that she could not just see that it's not just to know, but this is what I'm aspiring to do with my family. And this is why we can't do it because this right. is going to impact your grandkids and you don't want them <laughs> not to be. <laughs> you got the grandkid so, leverage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's for the grandbabies. It's for the grands. So we go from there. Yeah, man. I love it. Well, Mike, I so greatly appreciate most important, just you as a person. Your presence, your thoughtfulness is is always such a gift. As we bring our time together today to, to a close, is there a parting piece of advice, guidance, hope, inspiration you want to leave listeners with? Um, you know what? I think the, the biggest thing that I would encourage, like going back to that, what if we made financial well-being and wellness the, the central point in the way that we navigate as society? And I kind of in keeping with that, what if we made gentleness and compassion a key cornerstone to something that we aspire for? And not just for the people that we serve, but then also for ourselves too. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's volatility in markets, there's volatility in life, there's volatility in our household, there's volatility within our internal systems, right? <laughs> We're never yeah. going to not navigate a space of volatility. So yeah. if nothing else, especially not right now, leaning into generosity of others and generosity of self and self-compassion and kindness, and just knowing that we're all navigating this journey together, uh, but being rooted in that, in that kindness element and that being a currency in and of itself, oh my mm -hmm. goodness, I think that, that is, that's beautiful and that's something that I would love to see more, that we're just being intentional in that way because we need that, Ed. Oh, do we right? ever navigating yeah. what we're navigating. And like when I go to a restaurant or whatever it may be, I'm always being intentional about what is, what is our server's name? Cause I want to use their name. Right. I want to say, thank you. I want to say, Hey, how are you doing? I want to say, I want to yeah. be engaged in real connection and relationship. And if that's, if we're the only family that comes through that day that engages in, in, in genuine respect for what that person is doing under the burden that so much of our service industry is navigating right now, if that's the case, like that, I think that that's what we need more of, right? And uh, so a tip is great, but a tip coupled with pouring into yeah. someone in a way to where they just feel good and better about themselves and we the same, 
because of just engaging in real genuine human interaction, that would be my thing. Like let's, let's really engage in those spaces and in that way uh, because we need it right now. Man, that sounds like deep economic justice. Yeah. Wow. So much more. So we will have to have you back on the show. Michael, I know you have a bright future. We'd love to do it, Ed. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. You have, a, you have such a bright future ahead of you, such positive impact. And uh, thank you for sharing your time with me today. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I invite you now to stop for five or ten minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Add.